That addresses a very, very fundamental question because um, th- this is played on, on, on people down through the years. What would it be like if people could make other people? Yeah. Uh, what would it be like if man himself or herself could create life? And if they could, what would it be like? We seem to think that whatever we can create will turn out to be less than perfect, perhaps be a monster, and will perhaps menace us in some way. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Very happy to be back talking to you here again on another installment of the program. First of all, I want to give big, big thanks to all the folks who have been writing to us and offering their help and contributions for music here for BOA Audio. I have not gotten back to the vast majority of those folks out there, but just sit tight. I'm going to be reaching out to you this coming week, and we are putting together a plan to tackle the big music issue here on BOA Audio. So you should be hearing from me soon. Anyone who still wants to reach out to us and contribute music to the program for future editions of the show or for the back catalog of BOA Audio can reach me via boaaudio at hotmail.com. Shoot us a line and we'll be in touch. Now that we've taken care of that bit of in-house notes, stay tuned to the end of the show for a few more in-house notes, but I don't want to talk any more about BOA right now. I want to get into what you're all tuning in for. Our guest this week is coming back to the program since his original appearance on BOA Audio in Season 3. He is a masterful researcher of esoteric myths and legends, talking about the vibrant Dr. Bob Curran. Last time he was on the show, he was talking about lost lands and forgotten realms. This time around, he's talking about his latest book, Man-Made Monsters which delves into a variety of forms of life that mankind has either tried to or has been said to have conjured up since the dawn of creation. In this conversation, we'll cover the real-life influences for the Frankenstein story, the mysterious creature known as the Golem, the homunculi of the alchemists, ancient robots and computers, and contemporary man-made monsters that could be created via cloning and genetic research. So, once again, BOA Audio hovers on the peripheral of the paranormal. This time around, it's man-made monsters. It is truly a creepy but captivating return to BOA Audio by, as I said, a true master researcher of esoteric myths and legends, Dr. Bob Curran. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Dr. Bob Curran, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Dr. Bob Curran was born in a remote area of Northern Ireland. At age 14, he left school, became a grave digger, and eventually worked at a number of jobs, including professional musician and journalist. Bob attended university where he took his doctorate and became a teacher, working now in education and cross-community cultural projects. He has traveled many parts of the world, exploring other people's cultures and traditions. Dr. Bob Curran lives in Ireland, not far from the famous Giant's Causeway. He's the author of a number of books. Let me roll through the list here. 
Lost Lands, Forgotten Realms. That was discussed when Dr. Bob Curran debuted on BOA Audio back in Season 3. He's also the author of Celtic Lore and Legend, Encyclopedia of the Undead, Vampires, A Field Guide to the Creatures that Stalk the Night, Walking with the Green Man, Zombies, A Field Guide to the Walking Dead, The Truth About Leprechauns, Dark Fairies, and his latest book, Man-Made Monsters. Unfortunately, Dr. Bob Curran does not have a website, so head on over to Amazon.com and punch in Dr. Bob Curran or Man-Made Monsters, and there you'll be able to take a look at not just the latest book, but all of the different offerings from the masterful Dr. Bob Curran. With all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on December 7th, 2010. Dr. Bob Curran, direct from Northern Ireland, talking about man-made monsters on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. And this week we are welcoming back a previous guest who has appeared on the program way back in Season 3, talking about Dr. Bob Curran. Way back then, in the spring of 2008, we talked about his book, Lost Lands, Forgotten Realms, and that was all about mysterious places and, and strange uh, mystical places and sort of the history behind them, and I highly recommend people check out the book as well as the interview, but this time around, it's been quite a while since we talked to him, and he's, he's put out a whole bunch of other stuff since then, and I keep meaning to get him back on the show, and finally our paths have crossed again here with this new book titled Man-Made Monsters, a Field Guide to Golems, Patchwork, Soldiers, Homunculi, and Other Created Creatures. And it is really a fascinating and wildly entertaining book, as usual, from Dr. Bob Karn. His stuff is really just riveting. So it's great to have him back on the program. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Bob Curran. It's lovely to be back, Tim. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How about yourself? It's Like I said, it's been a couple of years since we talked to you. What have you been up to aside from... Man-made monsters, which we'll be diving into momentarily. Well, we have been looking at things like dark fairies. Uh, we have been looking at things like werewolves uh, and zombies. So you can see how my life pans out, Tim. Um, uh, very much the dark side. There you go. Yeah, you are. You are treading into strange lands all the time and and and, and stalking elusive creatures so it's quite the life i imagine it's a it's a tough life but somebody's got to do it (laughs) there you go now what made you go down the path of man-made monsters you know what inspired this particular book well uh new page who are the publishers got in contact with me uh and said can you do another book for us one of the things which has always interested me since I was a very small boy was uh, the legend of Frankenstein. Uh, maybe it's because that late at night, uh, on a Saturday night, they used to have a thing called, on over here in Northern Ireland, called Mystery and Imagination, and it showed old films. And... Um, one of those was the old uh, Frankenstein films with Boris Karloff and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And that began to fascinate me. And, and the idea of uh, coming back uh, from the dead and uh, sci- by scientific means rather than, <coughs> excuse me, uh, 
rather than by magical means or supernatural means. So whenever New Page got in contact with me, I said, well, what about Frankenstein and, and, and things like that? And they said, right, go ahead and, uh, and write some stuff. So we began to write and uh, another uh, area which had interested me, and uh, this allows me to throw all the, the bits and pieces that has interested me in. Yeah. Uh, the other area was the golem. Uh, and uh, the, for those of uh, your listeners who don't know, this was a creature uh, from Jewish folklore, which uh, was made of clay, and we'll deal with that slightly later, but could be raised by certain rabbis. So we put that in as well, and then somebody said, uh, well, what about uh, medieval alchemy and stuff? Didn't they create things? So we began to look at all that, and gradually a number of all the things which interested me came together, and you have the book in front of you, Tim. <laughs> there so, you go, yeah. uh, I hope you're reading it and enjoying it. Oh, I enjoyed it quite a bit, and like you said, it covers a whole bunch of different sort of... Uh, <laughs> monsters that are on the periphery that I had never even really considered before. It really collects them and puts them together in quite a, a nice menagerie. So kudos to you for uh, digging some of these up. Well, uh, there are all sorts, uh, because one of the uh, fundamental questions, and here uh, I suppose my psychology background comes in, uh, people say to me, have these things happened? How have these things uh, actually occurred? And I said, well, I'm not really sure. Something like these may have occurred, but the real question is why would we want to believe that they had? And that addresses a very, very fundamental question because um, this is played on, on, on people down through the years. What would it be like if people could make other people? Yeah. Uh, what would it be like if man himself or herself could create life and what uh, and if they could what would it be like and the consensus seemed to be that uh, whatever they created whatever mankind created was less than perfect less than what a supreme being could create because that is uh, in many cultures uh, we are created by a supreme being and that includes the uh, the christian culture and the jewish culture um but if the uh, if mankind could through whatever means um what would it be like and the and the thing was one that seemed to be less than perfect that it could turn into a monster that uh, or that we would lose control of it in some way uh, and there are all sorts of myths which we can we can, we can look at and all, and all sort of psychological uh, implications for that which we can look at so that is actually the title of the book man made monsters because we seem to think that whatever we can create will turn out to be less than perfect, perhaps be a monster, and will perhaps menace us in some way. So uh, th- that is the basis of the book, and that is where all these peripheral things come in. Absolutely, yeah, and that's a very important distinction that you make, because uh, as the book points out, and the, sort of the theme runs throughout the whole book, it's, it's that these are you know creatures or entities or beings that are created by man, and that time and time again, the fear or in this story, they end up becoming out of control and turning on 
on people, mm-hmm. and you can bring it all the way back up to you know contemporary times with robotics and cloning and stuff. So it's like this. Well, well, this, this well thread goes on. is a basic human fear. I mean, we're we're both. Uh, it's like many other of these horror uh, figures, like the werewolf or, or or something like that. We're both horrified and uh, uh, we are both curious, I should say, and repelled by it, uh, fascinated by it, uh, and repelled at the same time. And uh, the, the the question is, uh, uh, what would it be like if we had a godlike status? How would we use it? Uh, and you see the, uh, both the fascination and the fear coming in, even in the modern times. When we're and we'll maybe talk about this later on. When we begin to look at cloning, when we and you have already mentioned robotics, uh, we're fascinated by how far we can push the boundaries of science, and yet we're terrified that we might push those boundaries far too far, and uh, things might come back on us. So, uh, as I say, we're both fascinated and curious and repelled at the same time by uh, by what we did, because there is a certain fear there. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Now, to dive into the book, I found, uh, and I know, obviously, you are a masterful storyteller, so I've picked some sort of elements out of the book that are along the lines of stories, almost, because the listeners love to hear stories, and they really enjoyed your previous appearance, especially uh, okay. for that. And uh, I wanted to bring up, first of all, in the from the Frankenstein chapter, you really delve a lot into sort of the inspirations for Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. What might have, you know, planted the seeds in her mind to to write that book? And one story that was in there was uh, of a man named Giovanni Aldini, and I may have mispronounced that, who was... Uh, yeah, what's that? On. Oh, great. Who who was, you know, um, driven to try and, and resurrect the human body, a dead human, from, via electricity. And apparently this was, you know, a sort of a ongoing quasi-science, if you will, back uh, in the day when, when they were still tinkering around with electricity and, and, and the human body. And, not, you know, they hadn't understood everything quite yet. That's quite true, uh, Tim. Uh, Mary Shelley lived at a very interesting time when the sort of uh, old superstitious, uh, and I use that uh, uh, term um, loosely, the old superstitious uh, end, uh, or the old superstitious science had uh, was beginning to fall away and a sort of new modern enlightenment was coming at the end of the 1700s, beginning of the 1800s. And uh, sort of um, people's um, opinions uh, were changing. Uh, it was also a time of great conflict, uh, and Europe particularly was torn by war, and soldiers were dying. So, and the question was, could soldiers, particularly sailors who were drowned at sea and whose bodies were pretty much still intact, could they be raised from uh, the dead and brought back so that they could be sent back into uh, the conflict and back into battle? And uh, Giovanni Aldini was um, the nephew of Luigi Galvini. Uh, he was an Italian, uh, and uh, both, uh, both men were Italian. And Galvini had a very interesting theory that uh, humans could generate their own electricity. And that was what actually powered their body, powered their heart. 
uh, something which is called galvanic electricity, taking its name from Galvini. Aldini was, um, his nephew, was uh, anxious to prove this, and uh, he conducted a whole series of electrical experiments. It was thought that if uh, enough um, electricity was put into the body, uh, the heart could be almost kick-started. Now, we actually use that, uh, that idea actually today when you see them putting the pads on somebody's chest and yeah. charging you with electricity to try and, and, and restart your heart. Um, but um, <clears throat> Galvani uh, and Aldini both believed that uh, a, a dead person could be brought back to life using this. And uh, particularly Aldini, um, who came to London, uh, the, the problem was that he needed bodies. Now, the only bodies which he could get were uh, the bodies of criminals who had been executed. And there was a problem in, in his native Italy because uh, their uh, criminals were decapitated. Their heads were cut off mm-hmm. um, uh, as a means of execution. And so uh, he only had bits and pieces of the bodies to play with. He had an incomplete body, and what he needed to do was an incomplete, uh, was a complete body. So the only place that he could get it really in Europe was in England, because they hanged uh, many of their criminals, and their bodies were intact. So that's why he came uh, to London, and that's why he conducted this fearsome experiment, which became the talk of London and which Mary Shelley would have known about, because it really was. Her her father, William Godwin, uh, certainly knew about it. Aldini had tried to interest the English Navy in the experiments, because, as I say, uh, he could revivify, as he, as he called it, uh, drowned sailors. So uh, he conducted this fearsome experiment in front of many of the most illustrious men of London, medical men of London, including uh, the president of the Royal Society. And uh, I detail in the book what he did. Uh, He got his criminal and uh, he tried uh, to uh, revivify him. Whether or not he was successful, you'll have to read the book to find out. And there's a, a great mystery at the end of it. What happened the mysterious Mr. Pass? Yes. But I'll not say any more <laughs> because uh, it's, all, it's all actually all in the book. Exactly. But uh, that was a, a time when uh, all sorts of uh, experiments were being carried out. Yeah, and you make it pretty apparent, too, in the book that this sort of like this interweaving uh, of, you know, science and magic and how these two ideas, you know, were, were you know, always sort of intertwined with each other until, you know, more recent times, obviously. And, and he- Absolutely. And at the time, Aldini, in order to get, uh, to get funds for what he was doing, he needed money to, uh, to finance his experiments. He carried out what today might be termed magical or parlor tricks. One, uh, all with electricity. Uh, he became sort of like a, a, a showman with uh, electrical theater, if you like. One of his uh, his favorite tricks was um, a thing called kissing the electric virgin or kissing the elect- uh, the, the electric uh, um, lady. 
And uh, this was when a young lady uh, became mildly charged with electricity and she stood on a certain mat. And a young gentleman would come up and kiss her and get a very, very mild shock. And sometimes uh, electricity uh, would spark between their lips. And this was done in a darkened room. Now, you think, Tim, uh, today we take electricity for granted. And uh, I'm sitting uh, here with electric lights blazing around me. Uh, and I'm sure you are too. But remember that this was a world where candles and uh, uh, were still used, and sometimes gas. Gas was coming in uh, at this time. But electricity was something very special, something very weird, uh, something almost supernatural about it. So Aldini had a bit of the showman about him and a bit of the magic about him. He could make sparks jump from his fingertips in a darkened room. Now, that was magic. And whenever he, uh, back in Italy, when he had used the severed head of one of the convicts, which he had obtained, he made the eyes move uh, by using galvanic electricity, he said. And this was a great trick, uh, something verging on the magical. So you're absolutely right, Tim. The, uh, it was a time when magic was almost giving way to science, and uh, these experiments reflected that. Yeah, yeah, it makes you wonder how much of the old... Well, I mean, it's obvious, I guess you could say, that, that you know, old magic and is, is new science. You know, it's well, that kind of thing. The, uh, the, the, the distinctions between magic and science have become blurred. Yeah. Uh, maybe later on we'll talk about the alchemists, but the, the alchemists were working uh, in medieval times, in the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, at laying the foundations, actually, of what we would term modern chemistry. Uh, but they were working in uh, a way which was secret, which uh, which had ritual attached to it, and which was um, passed among them in sort of uh, secret codes, secret vellum tomes, um, almost quasi-magical books yeah. uh, to do uh, all sorts of um, experiments. And they couched their experiments in sort of uh, mystical tomes. Uh, so they, both uh, the alchemy and Aldini's magic shows uh, with electricity uh, sort of stepped across um, the boundary and kept a foot in both camps, both the magical and uh, the scientific. Yeah. And this even added to the allure of the whole thing because it was spectacular. It was something magical. It was something you didn't see every day. Yeah. And But it, you could explain it away by the fact that it was scientific, that it was the new science. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's pretty uh, remarkable to think about. Now, in the chapter on the golem, you talk about how it became quite a popular sort of uh, monster figure over the years, but it's never really sort of achieved the same popularity as, you know, uh, the werewolf, the Frankenstein, the zombie, that kind of thing. Why do you think the golem remains sort of, uh, you know, the the the, step, the bastard stepchild of monsters? Well, uh, we have to explain what the golem was. Um, 
The golem, uh, the origins of the golem were probably to be found in uh, Jewish tradition. Because Jewish tradition said that before our ancestor, the ancestor of the human race, was created, um, God had created uh, a, a sort of a couple of prototypes, one of which was Adam Kadmon, uh, the first, the really first man, and that was a prototype for Adam, and he was not perfect. Uh, so God abandoned him. Uh, and this was supposed to be the real origin of the golem. The golem was a man-like, a humanoid figure, uh, which had uh, all the attributes of a human, but lacked sort of intelligence and was made from clay. Now, it was believed that some of the early rabbis could do this. And uh, they had learned through the patriarch Abraham certain words of power which could enable them to create a, a, a man which would not be as perfect as ourselves but nevertheless would function in, a human, uh, in all human aspects uh, and uh, surrounding all this was ritual and mystical books the most uh, mystical uh, was the Sefer Yezirah which was supposedly the words of power which had been passed down by uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, our God, to the uh, patriarch Abraham, and which he had written down. It was probably, the, the book exists certainly, uh, the Sefer Yezira means book of formation. And it was, uh, it, it certainly existed, but it was probably written in the medieval period. Uh, by certain rabbis, but it detailed the words of power, it also detailed rituals, and only certain rabbis could do it. And uh, they had to, for uh, example, fast beforehand, they had to be clean of pure of word and thought and deed. Uh, they had to uh, use, uh, draw water from a well, which had never been used for drinking. Uh, the, uh, they had to use um, clay from a part uh, of a river which had never been uh, dug before, and, all, and there was all sorts of rituals surrounding it. So the, the creation of the golem was uh, very complex, and not every rabbi could master it. Yeah, the the, uh, the golem then. Uh, once it was uh, it was created, would have to be destroyed shortly after its creation because it could develop thoughts of its own, and uh, the rabbi could lose control over it. This was also the great fear in the man-made monsters. No matter what you created, even if it was nearly perfect, uh, you, you might lose control over it, and it would uh, it would go berserk. And this is what happened to the golem. I suspect uh, that the golem did not achieve uh, the sort of um, uh, kudos that uh, uh, in the early period that um, some monsters did was because it was a secret Jewish um, or secret Hebrew uh, tradition. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, not an awful lot was known about it. We knew about vampires, we knew about werewolves, we, uh, to some extent we knew about zombies and, uh, and things like that. But the golem was supposedly a secret Jewish tradition.
creation. It was mentioned among certain rabbis who were said to be able to create it, and it was kept secret by a number of books which came down. Uh, and it did not really grab the public imagination until the 1920s. So the golem was more secret. Uh, I would suspect that in the Christian West, uh, in uh, the 1700s and 1800s, when Mary Shelley was, for instance, writing Frankenstein, which was a bestseller, when Bram Stoker was writing Dracula, which was a bestseller, uh, there was a, still a, a great deal of anti-Semiticism about it. And this prevented a Jewish monster um, from um, uh, gaining prominence. The other thing was that uh, I would suspect that in, in certain Christian areas, the uh, Christians uh, used the golem as a sort of, uh, if you like, archetype or uh, figure for the Jews themselves, and uh, the, uh, there was a notion that the golem was really uh, some sort of Jewish figure which would rise up and destroy Christianity. And in some of the early medieval texts, uh, dating from the 1500s, uh, for instance, the story of Rabbi Judah ben Lo, um, who created the golem of Prague, uh, there is, you can begin to see, because these were written by, uh, some of these were written by, uh, Christian writers. Uh, they said that, uh, the rabbi had created the golem, uh, for spurious means, that he had created it to attack Christians and to do, uh, to, uh, destroy Christian places and to kill Christians. And, um, so the golem becomes a sort of, uh, figure representing the Jews, which has never really taken off. Yeah. And I suspect that underneath it all, there is that, still that fear that it can be interpreted in this respect. And uh, in an age where we respect another religion, perhaps the golem hasn't taken off in that, uh, in that way. But it still remains a Jewish tradition. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, almost you could almost draw a parallel in a way to the jinn, since they don't seem to have the same traction here in America that they do uh, in the Middle well, East. Once again, else. you have the notion of the uh, the Arabic jinn, or the uh, which comes from the Islamic tradition, and that, uh, uh, or indeed to some extent, once again, Tim, the Gaul which is, is once again in, uh, firmly put into that tradition. So you have these becoming figures from certain traditions which perhaps, to some people anyway, represent that tradition. And uh, it never really takes off. Now, uh, things like the werewolves, the vampires, uh, the zombies are sort of universal things. And you can, uh, in many cases, and indeed in the zombie thing, you can have a lot of fun with it. But I think there is still something in the back of our minds which makes us very hesitant about using the golem. There's only been two or three films made around that uh, sort of thing. Uh, and one episode of the X-Files. So there you are. Yeah, and if you, you know, if you ask somebody on the street about, uh, Golem, they think of the, uh, the Tolkien character now, so. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. However, I should point out that um, the uh, Chief Rabbi of Prague um, receives uh, a great uh, many uh, requests to go to visit part of the new old synagogue in Prague uh, in uh, the Geniza. Uh, Geniza is a place where they store uh, holy books, where the golem is supposed to be stored. The golem of Prague was allegedly never destroyed and uh, lies in a sort of state of suspended animation uh, in part of the old synagogue in Prague. Now, uh, the chief rabbi of Prague receives each year, he claims, almost a thousand uh, uh, requests to go and visit this part of the synagogue, and he always refuses them. I can believe oh. that because having read the book, I, that was one of the first places I wanted to go after <laughs> after I read the book. I was like, I want to go see this place. With the yeah, you, you can make a request, but you, <laughs> he always refuses. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, yeah. It, it, didn't you say also in the book that that where the, allegedly this golem is uh, stored was one of the only places that wasn't destroyed by the Nazis when they came in? To, uh, and that to is Prague. quite correct. Uh, the Nazis, when they occupied Prague, uh, went into uh, the um, synagogue, and it is said that the golem was resurrected and tore them to pieces. But uh, we don't know. There's no official record of that. But strangely enough, the synagogue itself, uh, while other synagogues were destroyed, this synagogue was spared by the Nazis. So you never know what's there, Tim. Exactly, yeah. Very interesting stuff. Now, on to the alchemists. Having uh, Obviously, having read the book, I, I was still sort of flummoxed, I guess you could say, by the homunculus and, and what the point of creating one was. It sounds like this was just like a little person in a jar that, you know, the alchemist tried to make and animate. But what was the, you know, what was the... With, with some of the other okay. ones, it, it served as like a servant or some other, you know... Yep. Uh, you know, uh, servant of some sort, but this this seemed more just like just like a novelty, just to have a little a little person in a jar. So what, a what little man in a jar. Uh, you, you need to understand what the alchemists were about. The uh, the alchemists were not really about self-aggrandizement or making themselves um, uh, superior in almost a material way. What the alchemists were about were searching for knowledge, what they called gnosis uh, from the Gnostics uh, in the ancient world. But uh, the medieval alchemists said about uh, finding things. For instance, uh, they believed that there was an element uh, known as the Philosopher's Stone. And if you have watched Harry Potter, you you will know the name of the most famous alchemist who searched for that, and that was Nicholas Flamel, uh, who was an actual person. And uh, they searched for the Philosopher's Stone, which was an element which could change base metal into gold. Now, they didn't do that, as I say, for monetary value, or for, but they did it so that they could uh, uh, they could uh, discover the knowledge of doing that. And there are stories that people have, uh, or some of the alchemists have found that. 
and uh, there knows maybe uh, they have um, gold stored away in secret bank accounts in Switzerland uh, and uh, their descendants. But uh, the other thing which they searched for was the Emerald Tablet. Now, the Emerald Tablet was an element which could uh, be broken up and placed into a goblet, and if you drunk it, you could extend your mortal life for X number of years. Some of them claimed that they could grant immortality. But that was not to make them immortal. That was to, to find the way of doing it. And the homunculus was exactly the same. Because the other thing the, uh, the alchemists searched for was the secret of life. And to make, uh, uh, to, to do that, simply to, to create a little man in a jar which would be alive, was enough for them. They would ha then have the knowledge and the gnosis for that. So that if they created a, a, a wee man in a jar, they could say, I did that. Yeah. Uh, I made that. Uh, th that was something which I did. Uh, and I now have the secret, and I'm passing it uh, among uh, other alchemists. And uh, if you read the book, you'll find that there were secret brotherhoods of them who worked uh, mainly between each other. Oh, yeah. And they created the. Uh, they're said to have created the secrets of the universe. So what they were doing was they were doing pure scientific inquiry. Uh, that's what we would probably call it today, that we, uh, they, they created these little men in jars because they could. Uh, and they had the knowledge, uh, which was kept, uh, and they claimed they kept very, very secret, uh, but passed among all these brotherhoods and all these other men. Um, uh, so uh, the little men in the jar uh, were there as an end to a scientific inquiry. Now, whether or not they did or not, uh, I don't know, but many claim to have created life in their alembics, which were sort of sealed containers. Uh, and uh, some of them claim to have grown men. Yeah, the, many of the alchemists thought that men could be grown like plants from seeds. <laughs> and if you find the correct seed, which is a bit like finding the philosopher's stone or the emerald tablet, uh, you could grow your own men. Uh, and you could begin, uh, once you had that done, you can begin to experiment and grow all sorts of things. They, they talked about growing um, animals. They talked about growing sheep. And they talked about uh, they talked about growing cows, uh, and uh, you could do all sorts of things. And uh, the knowledge was power because some of these men were taken uh, in, uh, and there were women. The the the, the earliest uh, alchemist that we know about was Maria the Jewess, uh, who was a woman, and some of these were taken in and enjoyed good lifestyles uh, by various patrons, such as the the emperors and uh, great noblemen uh, who wanted them to find the philosopher's stone or grow men, because if, if you grew men, you could grow an army, uh, and things like that. So um, they, they claimed to have created little men in jars and stuff. <laughs> the little men in the jars was, uh, A, there was uh, the um, result of scientific inquiry, and B, um, the first step in making maybe something bigger and better. There you go, yeah. So, uh, you paid your money, you took your choice. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, why do you think, 
it seems like, you know, you trace the alchemy back to way to the beginning, you know, like of the dawn of mankind practically, all the way up to, um, I'm trying to remember exactly, you know, well, I guess that's the point of the question. When, when do you think alchemy sort of died out? It seems like, you know, you don't well, meet anybody anymore. That's an day. Uh, much of the alchemy, on much of the early alchemy, is the basis for our science. Yeah. Uh, Particularly our chemistry. Um, I think that uh, alchemy, uh, uh, you can look at alchemy in the medieval sense, uh, and you're looking at the old, uh, the, the traditional old men with long beards, with uh, their uh, alembics and, uh, and, and various things, in some sort of um, confined chamber or something, the alchemist's chamber. That died out with the, with the coming of the age of enlightenment, um, around about the, the, the late 1700s, early 1800s, the time we've been talking about with Mary Shelley as, uh, as what we would know as science began to take over. Um, so you're began, you have that all the way back to the early shamans who knew about roots and herbs and things like that and knew about combinations of those which could perhaps heal a wound or perhaps uh, save somebody's life. Now, many of the, the, the herbs and, uh, and the elements and the chemicals which these men worked with are the basis of our actual science today. And uh, in a sense, alchemy has never gone away. Uh, they uh, they uh, are the, uh, still about, but in a, we interpret them in a different guise. Yeah. So the little man in the jar may be still sitting looking at you somewhere, Tim. <laughs> yeah, except this time he's the result of cloning or something like that. Absolutely. Uh, you're, you're absolutely quite right. I mean, we are, uh, uh, there was great fear of the alchemists, but we have that sort of fear of certain scientists, that they will clone. One of the questions I'm asked, are we any nearer to cloning um, human beings? And, there's a, and the question is asked, not out of curiosity, but out of fear. Because uh, if uh, people are cloning human beings, what are they cloning? And what are they doing in um, secret places? I mean, uh, they say that in Area 51 in America, uh, they are busy cloning away uh, with all sorts of... You know, and there are sort of cross-mutations with men and animals, and uh, they're producing all sorts of soldiers. I have had an inquiry from Toronto uh, very recently um, saying, what do you think about uh, this? And they've included some sort of um, thing about uh, cloning between, uh, I think it's jaguars and men. Oh, wow. Uh, so uh, to create some sort of super soldier for fighting in Afghanistan. <laughs> But that goes back to the early times when when emperors and noblemen hired these uh, alchemists to create creatures for them which could terrify their enemies and which could battle for them in foreign wars. Yeah, and in a way it sort of goes to the idea too that you almost don't even need to actually create the, the creature, just the idea that you could or that you have is enough to defeat your enemies or keep them from attacking. Well, that's quite true. Uh, and that is a sort of uh, the deterrent 
you may not have a nuclear bomb, but the thought that you might have uh, will keep your enemies from attacking you. Exactly. Uh, and um, you have exactly the same. If you had one of these alchemists working for you, and uh, people knew that he was working for you, and people knew that he was trying to create life, for you, and maybe he was, uh, it was put about that he was successful, and the little man in the jar was the first step, um, then your enemies thought twice about attacking you. It was psychology, um, yeah. pure and simple. Have you ever looked at the the story about the about Jack Parsons and them trying to create the homunculus in like the 1950s or 60s or something like that in the uh, in in the uh, in the desert there in the southwest of America? There was talk of that, and when we looked at that, and um, nothing was uh, once again like many of these um, uh, stories. Nothing was truly ever proved. Yeah, uh, there was trying. There was trying to create uh, to create little men. Uh, they say that some of the experiments in that time uh, have disappeared into Area 51, and there is uh, talk of a super soldier being created once again for fighting in foreign wars. A man who will not know pain, and uh, uh, it's playing with people's DNA and creating the uh, uh, so. The Parsons experiment, once again, like the ancient alchemists, was probably a, uh, a, a, said to be a first step. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Pardon the interruption, but I'm Mike Lobon. Tony, I am so sick of Charlie Sheen. The guy is everywhere. When the show's going to stop putting him on the air? And Tony Kornheiser, probably when he stops talking about tiger blood, fire-breathing fists, urine tests, F-18s, goddesses, trolls, tattoos, Vatican assassins, Adonis DNA, cryptology, white gold, droopy-eyed, armless children, rocket fuel... All right, all right, all right, all right, all right! winning... Stop. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Enough! Enough! I'm telling you... What is any of that? It's not connected. He's a lunatic. He may be, but I watch the Today Show every morning just to watch the latest Charlie Sheen video. One part of the book that I found really fascinating and tremendously educational and enlightening, because I'd never even known a lot of this stuff, was uh, when you get into the robotics part and talk about the ancient computers and the ancient robots and stuff. I never knew that, that robots and computers went so far back until I read the book. I was stunned by this. Absolutely. Uh, and um, whenever we were talking about that, I had uh, a glimmer that uh, ancient civilizations, and I think we talked about this before, Tim, uh, were much more advanced than uh, possibly we give them credit for. Yeah. Uh, part of our um, sort of arrogance in uh, the 21st century is to look back uh, to ancient peoples and saying, weren't they very primitive? Weren't they very... Um, Backward, or uh, they didn't have all the things that we had, and they had uh, just as much, um, and maybe more. And you have only to look in a number of books, and you'll see that the ancient Babylonians had batteries and and uh, were aware of chemical reactions and and uh, all sorts of things. Uh, and uh, they may uh, have had things which we don't have, and we have lost over the uh, ages. But they certainly had uh, uh, ancient computers, and we know that because uh, a, one of their computers has been salvaged. 
uh, off the island of Antikythera in the Greek archipelago. Uh, and that was uh, uh, discovered again in 1900 uh, when uh, the wreck of a Roman ship um, which was carrying a Roman general back from a, a siege in, in Greece uh, was wrecked and on board was a defensive mechani uh, mechanism or a computer which uh, um, corresponded to uh, calculating uh, the movements of the stars uh, and was probably used also in calculating troop movements. It was a very basic computer, but it was a computer nonetheless. And it had been captured by the Romans, and uh, the general uh, was taking it back on his ship uh, to Rome. Now, we know that there was another computer uh, also used in, uh, in defenses. The, both of these computers were designed by the Greek uh, mathematician Archimedes. And uh, we know that Archimedes had uh, designed uh, uh, a number of computers for the defense of uh, certain cities. This allowed uh, the defenders to, uh, to calculate uh, movements of tides, movements of the planets, and movements of troops. And so uh, these, were, uh, these were being used uh, time and time again. But we also know that the ancient Chinese may well have had some sort of mobile uh, computer-guided uh, vehicles. Because we know of a thing called the Chai Yu, which uh, was used in quarries, uh, and was uh, uh, it's described as a dragon, which ate rock and uh, excreted rock, which was chomped up, and it was probably some sort of uh, automated quarrying machine used by the ancient Chinese. Now we we can't actually date what uh, what. Uh, time this was being used, and we do know that uh, it lived in the inhospitable mountains where there were many quarries, and that it ate rock, and that it uh, spewed out rock. Um, so uh, we suspect that it was probably some sort of automated and perhaps even computerized ancient machine which could be used for various things. And when it died, its, uh, its engine simply gave out um, because they talk about it dying and it was sealed in a cave. Nobody has ever been able to find excuse me, where the cave is. And uh, so uh, somewhere up in the inhospitable mountains, there may be an ancient machine. But certainly we uh, suspect that uh, all sorts of uh, ancient um, computers, ancient uh, automatons, there was talk of a great uh, colossal figure known as Thalos, who appears in Greek legend, uh, who was a man of bronze and uh, defended the coasts of Crete against invaders. Now, if you have uh, seen some of uh, the early 1950s films, uh, such as Jason and the Argonauts, you will know that uh, he appears in these, and he had a stopper in uh, his heel, um, that he was powered by a sort of black fluid, which was almost like black blood, and whenever the stopper was pulled out, this blood uh, flowed out, and he became weak. 
And uh, this is how his enemies uh, defeated him. But uh, he was supposed to be the, uh, the, the great man of bronze. But we do know that there were all sorts of mechanical devices. For instance, in 1377, uh, an automated angel in London was supposed to have crowned King Richard and uh, Richard II. And uh, this was witnessed by the people. Uh, the angel came out and placed the crown on the king's head uh, as a symbol of God's power. And you had all sorts of other uh, ancient um, sort of mechanical devices among the early Japanese. For example, you had a mechanical orchestra, which could play. And you, uh, up in the 1700s, you had uh, in France uh, a mechanical flute player who was almost indistinguishable, it is said, from a human. Uh, and uh, you had all sorts of mechanical devices, a lot of them for entertainment, uh, and a lot of them, as science began to take over, as a wonder. And, uh, and these were placed in museums and uh, in um, uh, the courts of various rulers simply to amuse, entertain, and astound um, those who came to see them. Now, these, how many of these sort of like robots are, are still around anywhere? Are they still in some museums? There, there are there. Uh, there are some, uh, some in, uh, in museums in Germany, and there was um, some uh, taken uh, in France. The uh, the Antikythera mechanism, uh, which was the ancient computer, uh, I think was taken to uh, one of the big European museums. I'll, I'll, uh, the name escapes me at the minute, uh, but uh, certainly. Um, uh, uh, things like the flute player, which was uh, created by a gentleman, a Frenchman called uh, Jacques uh, de Vaucasson, uh stood in uh, the, the, the uh, Museum uh, des Ideas, or the Museum Academy des Sciences, which was uh, a branch of the Academy des Sciences in Paris um, for many, many years. Uh, and uh, from time to time, you can go to places like Munich and see some of uh, of uh, the, the remnants of uh, of, of some of these um, devices. Uh, of course, um, one of the things which um, put the uh, which um, placed these things uh, out of the public eye was uh, the, the stance of the church. Yeah, I was going to mention the, that. Yeah. The church, um, and, uh, and I'm thinking here of the uh, Vaucasson, uh, was visited by the church who was told to stop uh, making them because his, his creations were too perfect. Uh, and as I say, the flute player, which he made, uh, was so perfect that it was almost indistinguishable from uh, a human being, and the church became alarmed. So a number of these great, uh, in answer to your question, a number of great, these great devices were actually destroyed on the orders of the church, but bits and pieces of them can still be seen in places like the Academy des Sciences in France or in some of the museums in Germany. Uh, most of the early um, devices are now more or less lost to us. 
Yeah, yeah. It makes you wonder, like you said uh, when you started answering the question, uh, just just really how advanced the ancient peoples really were. I'd love to find out more someday, you know, and get, be able to find that the out. The ancient peoples, I suspect, were, were much more uh, advanced than we think. As I said, there's a, there's a tendency to think uh, of them as very, very backward. But uh, as I said, um, computers could be used by uh, Greek generals to calculate um, movements of troops, uh, when was the most appropriate time to attack, uh, and things like that. Uh, most of them were very, very basic, but uh, they were still computers. And and one uh, one little sort of thing that, that caught my eye, and I figured uh, if anyone would know more about it, it would be you, and you mentioned it briefly in the book, and that's the Voynich Manuscript. Talk a little oh, bit about the this. The Voynich Manuscript, yes, indeed. The Voynich Manuscript takes its name from a bookseller, uh, Voynich. Uh, this is a mysterious book which nobody has actually ever been able to translate. It, tur uh, it turned up, I think, in the mid-1920s, or the early 1900s, anyway. Uh, and it was sold by this gentleman called Voynich. Uh, and it is a whole uh, collection of unintelligible writings with pictures. Uh, now, nobody can relate the pictures to whatever sort of writing it is. And code breakers have looked at it, and code breakers uh, have been unable to break uh, the language that's in it. Uh, during the Second World War, uh, code breakers were handed a whole number of things. For uh, for, uh, for example, code breakers during the Second World War were handed uh, the Celtic Ogham uh, alphabet or the Celtic Ogham writing it to, to work out an alphabet from that, which they did. And, uh, and they we were able to get at least some um, purchase on uh, Celtic writing. But they were unable to translate the Voynich manuscript. And it remains as in, uh, as unintelligible and as, uh, as impenetrable as uh, whenever they first saw it. So uh, nobody knows who wrote it, nobody knows why it was written, and nobody knows what it says. Uh, so it is uh, that book. It is uh, I would stick my neck out and say it is probably one of the only books that nobody uh, knows what it's about, and nobody knows who wrote it, and uh, uh, nobody knows why it was written. Cause, so okay. uh, it remains, uh, it can be seen, or facsimiles of it can be seen. Uh, I think there's one in uh, the museum in London. But uh, once again, uh, nobody knows when it was written. Some people say it's very ancient. Some people say it is, has been written by the medieval alchemists because they wrote all sorts of books in code. Uh, to disguise what they were doing because the church took a very dim view of their early science and their early experimentations. So they wrote in code. Some people say that, that some people say it is a forgery. That it is not, uh, that means nothing. That it was written at the end of the 1800s. Uh, simply as a bit of a joke. Um, uh, and it has, uh, fooled everybody since. 
But and nobody knows what the, the, the manuscript itself says, or, or why it was written, or what it does. So, uh, unless you and I, Tim, can sit down and work something out, uh, it will remain a mystery. <laughs> can you, is it like available to buy, like to read, and, and to try for yourself? I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, 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 and as I say, there, there are copies of it, and I've seen facsimiles of it. Um, uh, these, a couple of these were actually in private collections, and they were not the original text or the original manuscript, uh, but uh, they were in a, 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 in a couple of private collections. Uh, and I think there's one, uh, I think it's held, uh, the original is held in the museum in London. Yeah. I don't know whether, I have never went on to Amazon and, uh, and see, can I buy the Voynich manuscript? There's books about it, but uh, I don't know whether you can uh, get the original uh, itself. Maybe if you and I broke into the, uh, the museum in London, we could, uh, we could make a fortune. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> <Could> be. <laughs> um. And and to sort of like bring it all full circle here as the book closes out, you get into the, you know, the emerging world of cloning and stuff like that. It seems like, you know, the here finally the human race may be reaching a point where these fears and concerns and the psychological worries about, about man-made monsters may actually start to come to fruition. It might become a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way we finally have the ability to create this life, and now our worst fears may actually happen, it seems. Well, once again, uh, the creation of life uh, has always been viewed as a sort of double-edged sword. Uh, the good things, which I mean, for uh, for example, you, if you cloned, uh, let's say, uh, and I think this was the, the background to the cloning of uh, something like Dolly the Sheep, um, uh, which Ian Wilmot did. Um, he named her Dolly, by the way, because he was a great country and western fan. He named her after Dolly Parton. Yeah. Um, that's just by the by. Uh, but, uh, th- the idea that it could produce, uh, milk with certain enzymes, which could, uh, perhaps cure, uh, a number of ailments or, or, or diseases within the human race, or that it could, pro- uh, it could produce um, some sort of um, uh, fine meat, which would uh, which would be free from uh, all sorts of problems, and I think that is part of the idea between uh, genetically modified grains that it can uh, that there's plenty of it, and that it can feed a starving world, uh, things like that. Those are the good points, but then there's the bad points. These things can develop out of control, uh, it has in certain uh, moral uh, moral overtones, has taken away from uh, the supreme creator, because man is now setting himself up as uh, almost as a god, because he can do that, and where will he stop? And I mean, that, uh, I think, is a genuine fear for many people. Uh, where, where, does, uh, where does he stop? Uh, can we produce a race which... Uh, is uh, almost indistinguishable. Supposing you wanted a son who had blonde hair and blue eyes, could you order it over the internet? Exactly, uh, and yeah. the, the, uh, whenever it, uh, it 
came your baby's turn to be born, it could be born the way you actually wanted it. Uh, and are we in uh, danger of producing a series of mail-order children? You could say, uh, you could go to your doctor and say, I want a baby born with, uh, 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 with a great brain capacity so that he will be a, he or she will be a, a genius or you could say i want a child born with a great a great musical ability so that he or she will be a great musician or something like that are we in the and people say that's usurping uh individuality uh you're making people to order and uh, stuff like that and you're going down a very dangerous road, and there is merit in that as well. So I think we're the fear has never gone away. What will we create? Will it be less? Uh, of course, there is also the less than perfect um, argument. Will it be less than perfect? What will it? Uh, we mightn't get what we order at all. Uh, something uh, so we might get something monstrous. Uh, what happens if we create a super soldier which has all the elements of a beast? Supposing we, you know, like the Jaguar Man, yeah. which, which somebody sent me recently. Are they? What happens if the Jaguar takes over and he's more Jaguar than man? Um, and you're back into the old werewolf. Uh, what happens if uh, he has powers beyond anything we can control? Uh, and what if he, uh, like the golem, develops a will of his own and turns against us? So all these fears are, and these are all legitimate fears. But uh, we, the, these fears have been about from the earliest times. People have asked, what would it be like if we could create um, something and made it good? Because the potential is there. And we talked about robots. Robots uh, in many of the early science fiction stories were the, were the excellent servants who were untiring and who worked untiring so that we could sit about and read the paper and what yeah. do whatever. Uh, and that is the good side. That, that made life easier. It made life better. But there's also the other side, the double-edged sword where it turns against us and uh, can overwhelm us, and it's stronger than we are. Uh, it's like the monstrous sun in the attic waiting to come down. <laughs> That's right. Yep, yep. And and so much more is detailed in the book. Man-Made Monsters, A Field Guide to Golems, Patchwork Soldiers, Homunculi, and Other Created Creatures. People can get that pretty much anywhere, I presume. I just saw it on Amazon and... And, uh, you can get uh, on Amazon. It's published by New Page Books, uh, and it's available on Amazon. It's available on Barnes and Noble, and it's available at all good bookshops. Mind you, I haven't seen a bad bookshop yet. <laughs> well, uh, I'd be remiss if we didn't put over also the artwork in the book by Ian Daniels. Just amazing stuff in there. He did the he did the artwork in in. Um, Lost, lost lands and forgotten realms, right? Uh, Ian, and, uh, so, uh, I have done ten pa books for New Page, and nine of them have been with uh, Ian. Oh wow! Uh, I know uh, Ian quite uh, very well uh, over the the years that I've been working with him, and uh, 
we'll talk about the book whenever a new page decides, or whoever it is, decide that they want the book. Um, I say, well, here's what we're going to, we're, we're going to be doing. What do you think? And he'll say, well, what do you, uh, what, what are you going? I send them up chapters uh, as I do them, and he'll send me back artwork. And I have, and he says, what do you think of this? And I have never been had to turn around to him and say, I don't like that. Every one that he has sent me down is, is terrific. Covers, uh, he's done the cover, he's done everything, and everything has been terrific. Uh, I can't praise his work high enough. Uh, and he's a very nice fellow. Absolutely, yeah. The, 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 the artwork is just amazing. It's breathtaking how detailed it is, and, and, and in, especially in this book, terrifying some of the pictures. They're just, just chilling. Yeah, well, we, uh, we, uh, I sent him up the chapter and he rang me and he kept saying, well, what do you think we, we should do? And, and, uh, I said, think about this. And, and he keeps saying, and he keeps sending me down stuff and, uh, we're thinking of new books and he keeps sending me down and he says, have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? And a lot of the stuff I haven't thought of. And his stuff inspires my writing. My stuff inspires him. Nice, nice, absolutely. And uh, before I let you go, talk a little bit about uh, Dark Fairies, because that one came out uh, over the summer, and, and I haven't got a chance to get my hands on it yet, but I want to definitely read it. So give me a thumbnail on, on that, on what that's all about. Okay, um, people ask me why did I do it. Um, I come, as you may know, Tim, from a, a very remote area of County Down. Uh, we lived in mountain country. Now, Tim, if you could see the grey in my beard, you would know that I, that when I was growing up, it wasn't yesterday. <laughs> so, they, uh, what we might term superstition was still very rife when I was growing up, and people believed in fairies and uh, creatures like that. Now, we have been conditioned, I suppose, by Walt Disney. He has a lot to answer for. Um, and to look on Tinkerbell and the Seven Dwarfs and, uh, and uh, most profanely, uh, Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Mm-hmm. Now, a new page once again got contact with me and said, would you do a book for us? And I was sitting with Mary, my wife, one night, and Darby O'Gill and the Little People came on, and my son was sitting watching it. And... Um, I turned to them both, and I said, that, those are not the fairies I remember. Uh, because in my part of the world, fairies were feared. They weren't like Tinkerbell and, or, or any of the seven dwarfs. They were things which could do you harm if they took a mind to. And they were creatures that had to be placated. So when New Page said, will you write us another book? I said, well, what about this? And I said, fine, go ahead. <laughs> uh, so I wrote about dark fairies, and it's about the dark side of the fairies and um, what they might be able to do to you. And it's a sort of corrective to the Walt Disney stuff. Nice, nice. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. It sounds really uh, mind-blowing in the sense that I'm probably sure there's a lot of stories in there that I'd never even heard of before, and will definitely paint a different picture of fairies than than. Absolutely, and and there's stuff from all around the world because we tend to think of fairies uh, as sort of Western European sort of uh, or, or. 
far western. Sort of. But, I mean, you have fairies in your part of the world too, Tim. You have the Nunahe, uh, which are the little men who live in, in deep in the, in the forest in places like North Carolina and stuff like that. You also have, uh, uh demons and, uh, and, uh, creatures from Japan. Uh, who take away children and uh, we could do another program on the fairies uh, alone. Absolutely, yeah, and we will sometime in the future for sure. Look forward to it. Now, obviously, like I said, you had a lot going on the last couple of years since I last talked to you and, and this interview is going to be posted uh, in the beginning of the year, so we'll, we'll sort of pretend like it's there eh? <laughs> at the beginning of the year. So here we are at the start of of 2011, what do you have, you know, in the pipeline? What do you have cooking on the stove here for the new year? Oh, everybody asks me that. Uh, this <laughs> year, uh, <laughs> this year I have written five books. Wow. Uh, at least I've lost count of them, actually. But I've written uh, at least five books. I'm going to take a short break, I think. I think, uh, I always say that, and uh, I look at, at Mary, and I say, I'm very, very tired, and she says, well, uh, well, look, uh, sit down, take a bit of a break. Uh, whenever somebody rings you up and asks you, can you do a book, new book, uh, say no. Uh, and people ring me up and say, can you do it? And I says, yes, certainly. Um, so uh, we are looking at a number of options. Um, uh, I, I did say to New Page, who are uh, one of the publishers, look, I'm, I would like a wee bit of a break. But uh, we are looking at, uh, by the same token, I sent them away a whole series of ideas. Uh, what uh, I've just finished a thing which they're doing for an anthology. Um, it's about ghosts, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm looking at poltergeists. Um, they're taking a number of authors and asking them would would they look at ghosts. So they got back to me and said, would you look at poltergeists? Uh, so we're looking at three cases of of, of, of poltergeists in that. Uh, I have uh, I have been busy scripting comics. I used to be, I used to work in comics, so oh, wow. there might be something coming out in the new year uh, on the comic field, hmm. and, there, but, and I've been designing books for Barron's um, um, educational publishing, and there's a set coming out on zombies, and I think magicians, and angels, all coming out in the new year. Um and uh, there's a couple of new ideas coming out, uh, which I don't want to say because they're still considering them with the new page. So I've enough to keep me going. Rest assured that there will be a book coming out in the new year. Very interesting, absolutely. Yeah, very interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing what you've got what you've got in the pipeline. Um, I, I, I'm struck here because I'm looking at your bio that it says at age 14 you left school to become a grave digger. This is, I did. This is uh, I left school at, uh, over here. You could leave school at uh, 14 whenever I was growing up. You can't do it now. But um, I left um, and worked as a grave digger. And as, uh, people ask me how I got into all this dark side of the road sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I said, I suppose it it's back to that because we used to do a thing which was called breaking graves. Now, that meant that I was assigned to some of the mountain parishes where uh, burying ground was at a, a premium. And um, whenever a fresh burial came up, 
Um, there were a number of graves which were unmarked and had not been used for burial for a while. So you went to what was called an allotment book. As long as the grave was unmarked, you went to this allotment book and I'd give you the records of who was buried there. Uh, and if there had been no burial for over a 100 years, uh, or no record, you were entitled to open this and wow. uh, use it for fresh burials. Uh, some people wouldn't do that, but I mean, I didn't mind it, but um, uh, I only ever got scared once, and that was, um, this is quite true, uh, and that was once when I was digging up a, a grave which had been used for a burial before. And you dug up old bits and pieces of coffins. You never saw much. There was a guy who worked with me made a fortune in wedding rings, which he dug up. <laughs> um, but um, that's beside the point. But I dug up uh, the lid of a coffin. And it must have been uh, a very wealthy person who had been buried in it because the, coffin, uh, the inside of the coffin was greatly lined. And the lining had been torn away. Uh, on the inside of the lid. Oh, God. And the marks of the fingers were still in the, the wood. Whoever had been buried there had been buried alive. And, uh, which was not uncommon because I was not, uh, not all that long ago in a house, uh, in a big house in which there was a bell which was connected to a crypt. And the people who were buried there could, uh, if, if they came to, could ring the bell. And we, uh, we, we get two expressions from that. Saved by the bell and a dead ringer. <laughs> so, um, that, uh, that was my experience as a grave digger. Um, but I, 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 I worked for the best part of a year digging graves and, and breaking graves and, and, and doing that sort of thing. Wow, that's just remarkable stuff. And I'm still sort of, my jaw hasn't picked up yet from that story about the, the claw marks inside the grave. That's terrifying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that, that terrified me. And uh, I think I stopped grave digging after that and became a lorry driver. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Well, mm -hmm. we're just about at the end of our time here, so uh, let me thank you once again for coming back on the show. It's always a pleasure talking to you. we got to get you back on again much quicker than we did uh, from between Season 3 and Season 6 because I just so much enjoy talking to you, and I'm really excited that you're putting out so much stuff and your words get, and, and you know, word about your work is getting around so far and wide over the last uh, few years since we first found you here on the program. Well, thank you very much for having me, Tim, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you and your listeners. Absolutely. I hope we can have you back again. I would be delighted. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks to Dr. Bob Curran for coming back on the show. Fascinating material from him on the man-made monsters. You definitely want to check out all of his different books. Since he doesn't have a website, though, you're going to want to go to Amazon.com and punch in Dr. Bob Curran or Man-Made Monsters, and you'll be able to see all of his different works. So check them out, folks. Trust me, they are very, very cool books. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback. Before I dive into the mailbag, I want to thank all the folks who have sent some seriously encouraging emails after last week's sort of crisis-filled 
end of show uh, ramblings from me. I can tell you right now, uh, as an update on what was going on last week, I am now free from retail hell and can start devoting all of my time once again to BOA for the near future. And I am looking forward to really diving back into Banal of America. And I'm excited to have this fresh start in a big way. And I want to thank all the folks who wrote to us, you know, wishing us well, telling us not to stress out so much about when the shows get posted, and just generally writing some seriously encouraging emails, long ones too, not just like, hey, keep it up, man, you're awesome, but like really long and thoughtful and and encouraging emails. So thank you very much, folks. I really appreciate it. As I said, I am now free from retail hell, and BOA is my A number one priority as we kick off the springtime season. Somebody on the forum pointed out how stressed out I sounded at the end of last week's program. Hopefully you hear sort of a less stressed out version of your friendly host. I'm feeling a lot better this week. I'm feeling a lot better looking forward to the future, and hopefully we have weathered the ridiculous storm that was retail hell. Now let's get down to business and check out some of the emails we received here at BOAHQ. The first one comes from Chris, and here's what he has to say. I'm a rather new listener to your show, and I don't recall how I came across it, but I'm glad I did. I think I've heard Joshua P. Warren refer to you a couple times recently, but I probably came across you as a result of looking for something else while doing an internet search. I've started listening to your podcast while driving at night and enjoy your interviews. So I heard episode 607 before I heard 606. I'm recalling the negative feedback you got in 607 regarding your previous conversation with Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop and how it made you think you might drop the year-in review of ufology. Then, after listening to the actual interview, it made them sound like a bunch of crybabies. I think your two guests were spot on, and you too, with what was said. Piling up additional reports and files doesn't really advance ufology any further, and what we need is more information, not data. You have good interviewing abilities and a good sense of humor. That's why it bugs me to hear you lower yourself by inserting unnecessary references to fuck and fucking. You don't need to do that to be a good interviewer, unless you're trying to become another Howard Stern. It just sounds out of place for a high-quality show like yours. Perhaps you do it just because you can. I know Joshua complains every now and again about not having a web show so that he can say all the things he wants to say. Whether that's content or cursing, I don't know. But you don't need to do that. It doesn't offend me so much as it just sounds out of place, especially talking to such high-profile guests as you do. That's all. Best wishes, Chris. Long one there. I'm tired just from reading it, but here is uh, my response to Chris. First of all, thank you for writing in, Chris. Much appreciated. And glad to hear you've recently discovered the show. Don't have much to say with regards to the Ufology Year in Review episode. Want to highlight your email, though, because it does show that there are two sides of the coin with regards to that episode. And I'm really kind of psyched that it got so much feedback, both positive and negative. I mean, we got people talking, and that's really the point of doing the Year in Review and sort of cutting loose as we did on that show. I mean... If nobody said anything about it, I'd be more concerned, but the fact that we got such vehement reactions on both ends of the spectrum is really awesome to me. Now, with regards to the swearing on the program, one of the long-running threads here at the end of the show, you can count Chris among the con folks to the swearing on the program. You know, I don't know, I feel like I should at least explain somewhat that 
when we swear on the program, when I swear on the program, it's never intentional. I don't sit there at the beginning of the show and say, oh, this is going to be great. This week on the show, I'm going to say fuck like six times. It's never like that. It's just something that happens. That's just the way I talk in a normal conversation. And as I was saying to somebody recently on this very subject, I sometimes feel like the better the interview, the more likely it is that I'm going to swear because the more the idea that we're putting on a radio show fades into the background and it becomes more of a conversation and then you hear more of the real me and then you hear me swear just because it's a natural part of me talking to this person. And I kind of like that about the program. I think that's what the pro-swearing folks have to say as well about that. I mean, I don't set out to do it on purpose. And believe me, I know that the swearing hinders the program in some instances. And I've had that on my mind at times. But really, I just try not to even think about it. And whatever happens during the show happens naturally. I will point out and hopefully help Chris out a little bit. He has a plug here at the end of his email for his website, biblicalapologist.blogspot.com. So, you know, check out his blog, biblicalapologist.blogspot.com, for more from Chris. Next email comes from Kip, no hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. I'll keep this short and sweet. Your podcast is amazing. Keep up the good work. I just started listening this week, and I'm addicted to it like crack. I'm interested to hear how you interview some of your more controversial guests. It's admirable when someone can sort the wheat from the chaff. The questions you ask are by far the most intelligent around, particularly the Jacques Vallée interview. Anyway, I could ask a million questions here, but I'll shut up. Peace out. Kip. P.S. Did you quit smoking? I can't remember hearing the click-click of the lighter in the later episodes. And the Tracy Twyman interview is depressing as hell. Well, thank you for all the accolades, Kip, first of all. Really appreciate those. Anytime someone compares your product to crack, I think, is, you know, a landmark moment for any artist. So I really appreciate that. And I don't want to ruin the surprise, Kip. I don't want to spoil future episodes of the program. So I'm not even going to answer your question here about whether or not I quit smoking. You're going to have to tune in to find out. (laughs) He's going to be very disappointed by the time he catches up with the rest of us. Uh, and yes, the Tracy Twyman interview is rather depressing, but also very fascinating. I had a lot of fun talking to Tracy Twyman, and stay tuned. She may be back on BOA Audio soon. So thanks for writing in. Kip, enjoy the BOA Audio archive. Dig in and fill your mind with some BOA Audio there, seasons one through five. And the final email this week comes from Michael, the hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. A paranormal skeptic on BOA... I listen to and read BOA because you let the person have their say without muscling in on their thoughts. Now you have brought in the unwashed to tell us no. That's not how it is. Every bump in the night isn't a multi-dimensional cryptid from an orbiting mothership. Bravo, sir, bravo. It is this sort of open-minded truth-seeking that keeps me coming back and contributing to your cause. Well done, Tim. Michael. Of course, Michael is talking about the newest column at BOA, The Paranormal Apostate, by Bruce Pretty. Yes, we brought a skeptic in to the mix on BOA to share his thoughts on why, you know, what we're hearing, what we're being told, what we're seeing on the Internet with regards to the paranormal may not be all it's cracked up to be. I like to think of myself as fairly cynical and kind of skeptical, really, about the paranormal. And I think it's important for not just BOA, but all the different paranormal sites and media outlets to really give a voice to some of these people who are 
they're really more in line with us folks. They're really sort of, uh, you know, wanting to know the answer to these questions, but certainly not biting on every worm that gets tossed into the paranormal ocean. I'm looking forward to seeing what else Bruce Pretty brings to the table because he was once a believer in a lot of paranormal stuff, and now he's much, much more skeptical about it. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he has to say. I'm looking forward to what he has to write for BOA, and I'm looking forward to hearing what the BOA readers think about his contributions to the website. Bruce is just the first in a wave of new folks who will be coming to BOA in the next few months. New writers, fresh columns coming from a whole bunch of different folks at all of America. Stay tuned, folks. And that does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Listener Feedback. Big thanks to Chris. I'll try not to swear so much. Kip, I did not quit smoking. There, I spoiled it for you. And Michael, who is a fan of Bruce Pretty's new column. If you want to be a part of future editions of BOA Audio Listener Feedback, here's how you do it. You write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the contact button. And, of course, if you're looking for something a little more interactive, you can join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Lots of great folks there talking about the world of the paranormal as well as pop culture. It is BOA's Paranormal Playground, theusofe.com. Check it out. And I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, so befriend me, follow me, and poke me if you'd like. That's all good, and I will uh, add you as a friend or a follower on those social network sites. Up next is the thanks portion of the program. Allow me to roll through the list of the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolin, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. And, of course, we got to add him in here because it's just a force of nature and a force of habit. But our newest staff member and our newest columnist, we just talked about him a moment ago, Bruce Pretty, author of The Paranormal Apostate. Since last time you heard from me, we've got a whole bunch of new stuff up at BOA. Leslie weighs in on a couple of big issues right now in ufology, the MUFON shakeup, as well as the Emma Woods story. The illustrious Tina Sena finally weighs in with her thoughts on the origins of the unknowable species and other mishaps, her long-awaited look at Bigfoot. And, of course, the debut of the paranormal apostate by Bruce Pretty, titled Who Is This Asshole? Anyway, an introduction. Bruce, come on now, you just made me swear, and I broke my promise to Chris moments ago. So, I'm, I'm a liar and a fool. Um... And we've got Richard Thomas coming back with some new stuff in the not-too-distant future, as well as new stuff from Regan Lee and Marla Pena. Stay tuned to be away for all kinds of cool stuff. We're working on some serious improvements to the website layout that I'm finally going to be able to devote some time to here over the next few weeks. So hopefully we'll have something really cool for you by the end of the month. We say it every time here at the end of the program, and I like to think that the BOA staff is living up to those words. If you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns at Banal of America, then you're only getting half the story. Now comes the part of the show where I take off my hat and pass it around to the BOA audio listeners and ask for some donations to the mothership. 
There's two ways you can do that. You can go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the PayPal button on the left-hand side of the screen. Or if you don't trust PayPal, you can simply send your donation to Tim Benall, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass., 01866. And if you're going to do that, please include an email address so I can thank you and make your donation payable to Tim Benall and not Benall of America. That would be much appreciated. You can find the mailing address also printed at BOA on the left-hand side of the screen. I know it's been a touch-and-go season so far, folks, but trust me, we are getting ready to roll out some awesome stuff for you here now that I can devote my full focus to Benall of America. So the more help we can get in fueling those upcoming gears, it would be greatly appreciated. And, of course, as always, I must make the point that no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Benall of America and BOA Audio to help keep the website, the audio series, and all of our fun and hijinks up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers, listeners, and supporters the world over. Next week on the program, we've got a massive edition of the show, and we're again covering another area in the world of esoterica that sort of hangs out on the fringes. I'm talking about the Ouija board, folks. We're going to be delving into the Ouija board, and our guest is Robert Murch. He really is one of the world's most respected names when it comes to Ouija board history. He has done some amazing work looking into the origins of the actual Ouija board. It's not just the talking board, but the Ouija itself, the American Ouija board. He knows all about where it came from, how it evolved, and where it has gone in the last hundred years. So as you can imagine, there are just tons of avenues to go down in a conversation like that, and I do my best really to cover all of them in this interview. I haven't sat down and edited it yet, but I did enjoy the conversation quite a bit and found it to be particularly revelatory in a number of areas. That's Robert Murch. He's on the next edition of BOA Audio. You can find it only at banallofamerica.com, and hopefully you'll be listening to it very, very soon. With all that said, I've got to rest my pipes here. I feel like I've been talking forever. Thank you so much once again to Dr. Bob Kern for coming back on the show, to Chris, Kip, and Michael for writing in for BOA Audio listener feedback, and for all the folks who've been writing in with their music offerings. Don't stop sending those, folks. We are sorting through them as I speak, and we'll have some big news on the BOA music issue very, very soon. Thank you to all the folks who've been sending in some seriously encouraging emails the last few weeks. I really appreciate them tremendously, more than I can say here at the end of the program. And, of course, all you folks who are listening right now, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners, the folks who stay all the way to the very end, you guys are the best. You are the fuel that drives the machine. Thank you for your support of the program. Thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall. Thanking you for listening and signing off.